from like your Steiger studies perspective, like it is, it is an amazing bit of Steiger in Dude. that movie. He's, he is yeah. doing more than what's going on in the battlefield. It's crazy. You know? And as Felipe said in his capsule, it's amazing that De Laurentiis wasn't guillotined by France for <laughs> for casting Rod Steiger as Napoleon. That's, that's awesome. As if that was like a real possibility. Like <laughs> the French people just like, we can't, yeah. we can't be having this. You yeah. know? Whereas I can definitely be having it. You know? Oh, yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts, and with me today are the other two hosts who go by the names of <laughs> Oh, uh Andrew Stasulis. And Eric Marsh. <laughs> We were just like just in our own worlds trying to figure out how to talk about these movies, dude. <laughs> so The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is challenged with picking a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts have to program a double feature that reacts to that theme, either honoring the theme, bucking up against the theme, or perhaps even just playing with the theme a little bit. And um, this week, I had the the good fortune of not having to select the theme myself, even though I do enjoy doing that, but we had a fan write in. Uh, Matthew Dennison sent us an email with some notes, some very kind words, and also a suggestion for a topic. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what he wrote to kind of remind everyone of what we were sort of playing with here. And Matthew had written saying that we have periodically talked about video games and wondered how the gauntlet might consider games in light of movies. He talked about how we've interacted with different types of games before, like we had an episode on baseball, boxing, game shows, and to quote Matthew, he writes, I was thinking more like board games, video games, card games, etc. I was thinking about being fancy and using Johan Huizinga's definition of play or Bernard Sweet's theory of games, but I will defer and leave it to the bright cinematic minds of the show to make a useful prompt. And then he kind of narrowed it down saying, bring me movies that are about play or games and the special space they hold in our lives, balancing both trivial and meaningful purposelessness with purpose. So I thought it was a really inspired prompt. I do like video games. I like games in general. And I thought, yes, let's take a look. And I, you know, sort of left it at that. I didn't revise anything and I wanted to see what the boys would bring. And... Of course, we're going to start playing around here. We're going to get some stuff that's a little bit different than I think what we're used to on the show. We have a film, uh, Far and Away, our shortest film film yet. <laughs> you know, I think our the shortest one was probably the Godard film, Here and Elsewhere, which was about 53 minutes. And I think the Dan Aykroyd one was pretty short, too. But yeah, this is, we've got a 30-minute film here on the pod. But I think, you know, there's there's quite a bit to chew over. And we had another film that I think clocks in somewhere around an hour 46, but, you know, I gotta say, 
kind of felt like maybe the longest film we've had on the podcast so far. But enough of me, Gavin, about spoiling this. Let me uh, have both of you introduce the films you brought. So, Marth, your film was shorter, and it was also the first film. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so when, you know, the topic came out, I sort of immediately was was looking to head in the direction of filmmakers who play games or filmmakers who sort of approach cinema as a game to be played. Um, and in that sort of process of thinking, I, I sort of immediately went to Jacques Rivette and Raul Ruiz. They're two of the filmmakers that I associate with games of all kinds. In Ruiz's case, more sort of like game theory. Uh, and in Rivette's case, this sort of like collaborative game that he plays with his cast and his crew in the making of these movies that typically weren't really written beforehand, right? So the idea of, yeah, like movie making itself as a game, I wanted to like bring a little bit of that spirit. And so ultimately I settled on, yeah, uh, a short film, a 30-minute film that was uh, directed by Raul Ruiz in 1980. Uh, and its status as a film uh, perhaps uh, is even contested by the author itself. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, <laughs> the film is Zigzag, a.k.a. Snakes and Ladders, a didactic fiction about cartography. And this is a film that Ruiz made to promote a new map exhibition at the Pompidou Center. Um, it was called Maps and Figures of the Earth, is the uh, exhibition that was going on, and he was hired to promote it. And uh, being Raul Ruiz, he took it upon himself not just to promote this thing, but to make a film uh, that is very reflective, I guess, of yes, playing games, but also allows him to uh, sort of expound upon some of his pet theories about maps and territories and cartography, some of that Borges territory we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, but as the title says, Snakes and Ladders, it is an allusion to uh, a board game and really the construction of the film. Again, it's, it's a short film, but boy, there's a lot packed into it. There's constant narration, maps, graphics, and other... Uh, you know, sights to, sights to behold. <laughs> um, but uh, the setup is basically this guy uh, who's known as H uh, wakes up on the side of the road. Uh, he doesn't know what's going on and he stumbles into a field and he sees two men in the middle of this field playing a board game. And he approaches them and, and sort of inquires, says he has an important meeting that he has to go to. Uh, and these men explain, uh, I think they're playing Ludo. Uh, they say that Snakes and, and Ladders is, uh, shouldn't be played by children because it's too scary. And soon we are wrapped up in what H calls uh, a nightmare, a didactic nightmare, as he becomes unwittingly involved in a game in which Paris itself is the board and shifts from there and we'll, and we'll get into that but essentially it's like I guess the best way for me to describe it is like it has the feeling of like yeah if you were like a pawn in a board game 
uh, and thrown into this world. Uh, that's sort of like the on-the-ground perspective uh, throughout this movie. And so again, it allows Ruiz to uh, cover a lot of ground and use a lot of transportation as well and explore the labyrinths of Paris and Earth and the cosmos. Um, yeah, with Ruiz, you know, he's, he's definitely playing games with the audience. He's playing games with these ideas. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, typical, I'm thinking like, this, this film's gonna nail it out, you know, gonna nail it out of the park. It's got a board game title in its title. And it's like, no, of course, this is more about maps than board games. <laughs> but we can talk about, obviously, a map is important in many board games, or at least defining the sort of borders of a game, I think, is something uh, we can get into. Um, yeah, uh, about the film, Raul Ruiz was asked about it many years later, and he said, that was advertising. It was advertising for an exhibition about maps. I don't remember it too well. Yeah, it was a commercial, <laughs> dude. I made a TV commercial. He said, uh, it was well-known Parisian intellectuals playing those characters. Uh, about mapping, it's curious because the mapping function is very important in visual perception. The idea that you always, uh, when you walk in the street, you have a mapping function. Uh, you have a version of yourself looking from up to down. And that's what he said about the film. So uh, he didn't even remember it. Um, <laughs> now, funny about that, of course, is because I was like, God, I need to like do a little more research about this crazy little thing. Uh, and I opened up this book, Impossible Cartographies, the films of Raul Ruiz, which in its introduction uses zigzag as the like deciphering code to understanding his entire filmography. So uh, on the one hand, he sort of dismissed it, but a lot of people think it is a central uh, sort of piece of his work and marking a transition in his career when he was going into the 1980s and playing a little more games with that form of cinema as he was known to do. Um, Kaya de Cinema also loved it and featured a bio of him in a snakes and like shoots and ladders board and it had his filmography with like graphics of a <laughs> board game. Um, so, you know, it lives on. It's on YouTube, you know, um, if you're interested. It, obviously, it's sort of an obscure movie, but you know, one of the reasons I wanted to check it out is because I think one of one of the great French films was actually also an advertisement for a library, the Alan René film, All the mm. Memory of the World. Uh, so there's like, yeah, that sort of tradition in France of doing like an artistic sort of... PSA. Yeah, but, you know, about stuff that's cool, like maps and libraries. These guys would sort of give it their all uh, in these, yeah, sort of contained spaces. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, Zigzag from 1980. Thank you. Yeah, Agnes Varda made some pretty nice, you know, like tourist destination films, like come visit this town, enjoy the beach, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff, which is got to make a living. <laughs> yeah, I, but they're they're lovely. They're very nice. Um, yeah. OK, Andy. So your film came out a little bit later. Set the stage for this one. What'd you bring? I knew that I wanted to um, focus on the, the video game element from our prompt which again thank you so much for for providing us with with such a uh, an excellent platform to yeah play with um so i knew i wanted to go the video game route 
Uh, I just didn't quite, I just didn't really sort of know what I wanted to, to pick. And I, I think there's obviously been, and certainly in the last, you know, 10 years now, I think so many more, um, big commercial films being made about gaming because it has be become, it's, it's sort of overtaken, you know, blockbuster cinema as, you know, the, the, the real cash cow of, of the media world. You know, when you consider the budgets on triple a, uh, games, you know, things like call of duty, things like battlefield, uh, it's, it's astronomical compared to the average Hollywood feature. Um, so I, I didn't want to cover a lot of that territory that I think has been, um, you know, uh, much more seen by the public in this day and age. Um, and then I stumbled across in my search a movie that at some point, you know, like Ruiz, I couldn't really remember it, but but you and I, Ryan, had discussed it. And it was on your watch list on Letterbox, you know, something you wanted <laughs> for to see. For some reason. For some reason. <laughs> I, I, I have a vague memory of us somehow being like, have you seen Avalon? No, I heard about this. Anyway, I, I, I didn't really, it was like a dream, you know, or something like that. Uh, our own didactic nightmare brought us to, to the film <laughs> I chose, I guess, uh, which is a movie from 2001 directed by Mamoru Oshii, the director of Ghost in the Shell. And this film is his live action um, the exploration of a sort of dystopic world of video games, a movie called Avalon. Um, to describe the movie, I think the best way to do so would be to use the prologue text that appears on the screen when the movie opens. The near future, some young people deal with their disillusionment by seeking out illusions of their own in an illegal virtual reality war game. Its simulated thrills and deaths are compulsive and addictive. Some players, working in teams called parties, even earn their living from the game. So, in a way, um, you know, this film, I think, kind of predicts the the huge explosion of like gaming that would unfold over the subsequent like two decades um and i think that's kind of interesting to sort of chart those things in the film that now are so present in our culture um but to just simply talk about the, the film a little bit more the plot builds from there we follow a character named ash who is a solo warrior, this woman who is very much addicted to this, this game known as Avalon, this, this sort of extraction shooter. Um, and, and the film follows her as she kind of, you know, continues to, to, to dive deeper and deeper. She's one of the top players in the game, but she plays without a party. We find out that she was at one point a part of this team, Team Wizard, who were supposedly like an unstoppable team in this gaming world. Um, and she discovers that there is a, there's more to this game than perhaps meets the eye, that there is a, a super secret special level 
to this game. Uh, uh, I think it's called like, you know, Class Special A, something like that. Yeah. And she wants entry. She wants to test herself. She wants to get to the, the deepest, darkest, heaviest, and most challenging uh, uh, world within this, this virtual reality. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit more from there because um, there's there's not a lot going on, but there's also a lot going on in, in a very interesting way. And I think anyone familiar with Mamoru Oshii's other work um, will find a lot of similarities, a lot of similar sort of um, beauty at times and a lot of similar sort of like frustration at times. You know, Oshi has said that he is someone as a a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you know, he's so much more interested in in visual aspects. He's so much more interested in in visual design. For him, he said like plot always is one of the last things he worries about. And I think this film is very very emblematic of that statement. This is a movie that has some really inspired moments of of its look, of its feeling. You know that it sort of generates in 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 certain moments, I think are really like inspired and and you can clearly see how they've influenced other works. I mean, that's certainly the case with with The Ghost in the Shell. You know, it's considered the seminal work of science fiction and anime, and there's a huge list of filmmakers who point to that movie as, you know, one of their like guideposts in their journey as, you know, filmmakers. Um, but you know, like Ghost in the Shell, it's a movie that that I think you you experience, and the more you kind of think about it, the more it can kind of sort of. Um, leave you with with questions, you know, more questions perhaps than answers. And there's certainly a lot of of things to pick apart here. I think like the the Ruiz film, but but in a way, you know, I also feel like this movie also could have been fine at 30 minutes <laughs> instead oh, of yeah. an hour and 47. <laughs> but you know, that's that's something we will we will certainly discuss. Um, yeah, I, I do think though. It's a it's a very intriguing film, and I'm I'm very excited to to sort of get into it because I think that it's 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 way of again as I I said a little bit earlier, kind of predicting in a in a much more like dystopian way, like what the future of media would look like. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which this movie is sort of like absolutely like nailed it, and and really kind of. Um, laid out this this kind of like hellscape of of the world of gaming we find ourselves in now in in 2023 like 20 years later so so yeah that's the movie that i brought avalon from 2001 thank you yes yes i think it's a film that um i'm excited to talk about because I, I, it as i was watching it i i knew i'm like this will be one that'll be nice to talk about much nicer than it was to to endure it but i do want to also thank Matthew Dennison, just, you yes. know, thank you for that. Uh, really appreciate it. It's an exciting prompt. And I also did want to congratulate both of you on, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but your picks, in a way, perfectly represent the two different theories that Matthew was citing in his email. Because there are contradictory elements 
of these theories, and I think each film you selected represents the idea of game and play in different ways. And so I'm going to I'm going to refer to those at the top of this so we can think about it a little bit. And I was going to say that, Marsh, your film is definitely much closer to the definition of play from our guy Johan, who says... Summing up the formal characteristic of play, we might call it a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious, but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. It is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained by it. It proceeds within its own proper boundaries of time and space, according to fixed rules and in an orderly manner. It promotes the formation of social groupings that tend to surround themselves with secrecy and to stress the difference from the common world by disguise or other means. And to be honest, that was the effect that those 30 minutes had on me when we think about this own universe of a game being created that seems so chaotic and jumbled, but there are rules and laws that apply to how everything is guided, as, as fanciful as so many of them sound. The other definition of play from our guy Bernard his is the one that was cited directly in the email, and this is the one that I think really applies to, to Avalon. Because in a way, Avalon doesn't fit certain elements of uh, Johan's definition of play, specifically with the idea of monetary gain. Johan couldn't predict the age of streamers and the way that other people make a living with the game of Avalon. But when looking at Bernard's definition of the idea of play and specifically the lucery attitude, his definition is the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. To play a game is to attempt to achieve a specific state of affairs using only means permitted by rules, where the rules prohibit use of more efficient in favor of less efficient means, and where the rules are accepted just because they make possible such an activity. And at its base level, I was thinking a lot with Avalon, the goals that are set up why they want to achieve them and the roundabout way they have to go about achieving those goals feel like it only fits within the world of this game. It's not necessarily a logical progression that you have to go after this ghostly figure that detaches from a wall and for that brief period that's when you have to shoot it and you can access this other level. So I, I did want to call, congratulate you both and thank Matthew for citing both of those because I did think they both provided me a key into at least an entry point for looking at both of these films. Yeah, and I think you're you're pretty right on. The only thing I would say, I guess, is what's what's interesting about the Ruiz film is that from the player's perspective and therefore our perspective, uh, the rules are not fixed, uh, <laughs> right? Because they yeah, keep changing. And sort of the <laughs> gag of the film is that just when he's sort of like, maybe arriving at the destination he wants to be, the map is scaling up. And the map keeps changing its size, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, on the one hand, we could say, well, there were fixed rules. H just simply didn't know them, and neither did we as mm -hmm. the audience. And I thought that like that's one thing that the Ruiz movie really captured in my experience, just personal experience of gaming is like when you get a new game and you like pop out yeah. the rules and you want to play and you, th and you throw yourself into it, but you don't 
actually know all the rules yet. You know, you're learning as you go along. And so I think the film really captured uh, that aspect of the whole thing just on a on a personal level. Just thinking of us like going through the Axis and Allies manual like yeah. it's the Constitution, Dude. you know, for weeks on end. <laughs> yeah. A 40-page book. <laughs> Yeah. And we'd still get things wrong. Or even a, like a 45-minute tutorial in a video game where you have to learn the new types of inventory yeah. management and how all these menus even work. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, Andy, like the, the squad sort of culture that's like depicted in Avalon was cracking me up, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I can't tell because it's, it's, it's hard to like research this kind of thing, but like... You know, as it's presented here, the idea of your team being referred to as a party very specifically and like any person who's done any online gaming, you know, starting, I would think, in like the mid 2000s on like the the party, the Xbox party, the PlayStation party like that is now so like ingrained in in gaming culture. But like I don't have any memory of when that started, you know, being referred to as like the party, you know, the people you, you played with, but, but today, you know, that's, that's it. It's, it's all about your party, your squad, as you've mentioned. Yeah. I don't remember using that language. Um, you know, I first started online gaming, I think in 98 with Starcraft, like Battle.net. And yeah, we weren't, I would play with friends, but we weren't like talking like that. Yeah, you, know? you weren't were partying <laughs> up the way you do today. I mean, and that's that's how again you talk about like the 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 UI, like that is the specific term that's that's used. Party, you know, you know, someone has joined the party, someone has left the party. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think. Again, is 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 interesting about Avalon. It's it's the way in which all of the components, the, the rules, the, the sort of, you know, the, the world building that he does in it that's meant to seem like foreign and dystopic is, is so like familiar, you know, and, and I don't want to say utopic today, but it's not like frightening and menacing the way that, that it's meant to be depicted here or strange and alienating, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in us that that I think watching Avalon in 2023 has this this strange effect of being something that is more than two decades old, but also like such a product of this particular moment when it comes to that. The ideas of like modern online gaming that was, I have to think, like very ahead of its time in 2001. I mean, I can't remember when I started playing Halo online, you know, and, and I think that's closer to this world than, you know, something like Starcraft was oh, at, yeah. you know, in the late nineties on, on early fucking dial up internet. But, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a very uncanny feeling. Yeah. It's a remarkably prophetic film. And I mean, I guess I should get it out of the way. Like I, I'm so glad you picked it, and I think it is such a curious thing, but, like, oh, my God. I, like, I really, really hated this movie. And it's one of those things where it's, like, it's, I agree, it is so prophetic, but that doesn't mean I need to, like, like what this guy's doing. And it's also, like, simultaneously, 
and I guess, you know, you have to give credit to something that really like bothers you this much. Right. And that's why I, I'm glad you picked it. I like being confronted with something like this that kind of like just gets me all fired up because it both felt like simultaneously the dumbest thing I've ever seen and also so intelligent about what it is trying to depict. And that was what was swirling through my mind when I was watching it. Because in a way, I can't believe, as much as I was lost with certain elements of it, I can't believe how much it does capture, like, straight out the gate, what gaming culture kind of feels like today when you look at it. Because I do think gaming is full of joy, but it does, like, capture this imagery of this kind of joyless attitude of play. Mm -hmm. Especially at the very beginning when... It's like the audience watching the live stream when we're outside of the virtual reality game itself and we've got a group of guys watching someone else play the game and like racking up all these points, you know, to me it immediately evoked streaming culture Mm -hmm. and people sitting there watching it, treating it like sport, talking about the different players, comparing scores and stats. And it's amazing that in 2001 we have a film that is directly depicting that like it blew my mind yeah yeah the way she you know like her commute is depicted it's depicted like work you know or like an addiction you know um and it was bringing back for me memories of in college i brought you know like my sega genesis to the dorm and, and me and my buddy john were obsessed with streets of rage 2 classic uh and we beat it on hardest mode because we had learned that if you beat it on hardest mode, there was a secret difficulty called mania uh, (laughs) that was harder than hardest and not listed in the game menu. And that was like, like a goal of ours in life was to be, you know, beat Streets of Rage 2 on Mania, the secret difficulty. And we ultimately did it over a very fraught weekend, you know. <laughs> uh, many long hours put in. But, yeah, I, I appreciated that, just the way that a game can get you to uh, push beyond or push it to the limits even in this sort of virtual space or whatever. Um, I think we should talk more explicitly for our listeners about how this world feels and what it looks like too. I don't <laughs> think you mentioned that the actors are all Polish, uh, <laughs> right. which is its own form uh, of alienating effect in terms of this being like a film that feels like a live action anime. Uh, but then there, there's all these Polish actors, right? Uh, I did not uh, dislike this film, certainly not the way mm. Ryan did. Uh, and I assume one of the reasons is because uh, the way this film looks, right? Yeah. Uh, this film looks, I mean, it's got whatever you want to call it, sepia, dystopic, piss filter, basically, throughout. And it's very aggressively stylized. There's a lot of, like, CGI backgrounds and other, like, visual effect elements, like, constantly throughout, a lot of play with focus. Um, But I actually liked the sort of meditative pace of it. I know there Mm. isn't, like, a lot going on, but I did eventually, like, appreciate that it wasn't in a rush to do anything but yeah maybe it should have been i'm not i'm not sure you know well yeah no i mean you're you're getting at what bothered me because i think i would have been able to enjoy that meditative pace if i didn't have 
to me, what did feel like an extreme barrier, which I thought the movie was an eyesore. I like could not get past that. To me, it was just sludge. It, it was a total misfire. <laughs> I think interesting conceptually to make the movie look this way. But I also, you know, in, in feeling that it looked like a live action anime and having, I just experienced Ghost in the Shell for the first time like two days ago, which, you know, I didn't get a lot out of it, but I did find it to be like, undeniably gorgeous and beautiful to look at i wish he just animated this thing if, he, if this whole thing was animated it was exactly the same i would i probably would be able to interact with it in a little more of a meaningful way uh, at least emotionally right but it was such a barrier to have all these like dorky polish people dressing up in like this guy's idea of what's sexy like this like pixie dream girl gamer girl give me a fucking break with just her traipsing around in her undies and the cooking little anime dinners for her dog i i i, I like wanted to cry i was like turned this off but i i, I think that, that that yeah that was what was something that was troubling for me because because i couldn't get emotionally keyed in with it those long dead air passages were kind of interminable because he does do it even in ghost in the shell a film that's much shorter oh yeah i was really surprised there's like a chunk of ghost in the shell that felt like it had to have been maybe five to eight minutes long of him just showing off the cityscapes yeah. that they put together. Yeah, it's just city, the city symphony, like, yeah. at times. Yeah, and it's beautiful, mm -hmm. you know? It was funny watching both of these films then in such close proximity to each other because he was applying everything he was doing here into the live-action format, but to me, it just surface-level aesthetic, impossible to look at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean... Look, I, I, I certainly, I'm, I'm probably closer to, to Marsh on this than, than mm -hmm. I am to, to you. Um, but yes, even I, at times, you know, felt the weight of this movie's look like, like a stone on my chest. Uh, it is yeah. oppressive. And again, it's clearly part of what he's going for. You know, he wants this world to feel dour and broken and depressed and you know you can certainly do that as a filmmaker to the point where it bums out your audience you know and i think that's <laughs> that's certainly a little bit of where he drifts where he certainly like drifts in this movie but yeah i mean to marsh's point about you know why this was done um i i i know that you know he he decided to do it as a Polish co-production because in his mind of conceiving what this kind of, you know, broken down world looked like, he just is like picturing post-Soviet Eastern Europe, right? And and these just gray block cities, you know? I mean, like, to be fair, like the, the Neo-Tokyo of uh, Ghost in the Shell, I mean, it's, it's vibrant, it's neon, it's colorful, it's loud, there's a lot going on there because, I mean that's what Japan looks like right. today, right? That's kind of what it's always looked like. Um, but, but in his mind, like he saw this as being set in this kind of like post Soviet, you know, blob of, of yeah, CPI, you know, of this filter as Marsh, as Marsh put it. But I think also 
um, because he got big breaks from the Polish government and and basically like them signing off their entire armed forces for him to like, <laughs> you know, have some really cool visual spectacle in terms of the war games. I mean, there's real ass fucking tanks driving around and, and real yeah. ass helicopters flying around. There's a lot of military equipment on display here. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, in, in that sense, it's like, there's a lot of pieces here that are kind of like mixed together to create what he visualized, but the overall effect of it, it's, it's, it's like, I almost think it's like too successful, right? It's like, it's too, it's too much of the world that he wanted to, to, to build, you know? And I think too, like your point about the pixie, you know, whatever stuff of like Ash, you know, it's interesting because the ghost in the shell was, was such a huge influence on the Wachowskis. And, and, Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is this came out in 2001 and I see this as him having seen the matrix in 1999 and, Mm. and take, trying to take a few pages from the Wachowskis book and, and specifically like that film, but you know, yeah, I mean, because look back even on The Matrix, right? Like, that movie kind of looks like shit at times, too. It's very drag, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's got the, like, yeah. green filter, the vomit filter over it, you know? So, But there's, like, depth to the image. Wow, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shallow focus stuff in Avalon. Um, but there's some, there's some depth, you know. Don't, don't, sure, uh, sure. Yeah, there's a wide variety of techniques on display. Yeah. Uh, but I guess, like, yeah, one element to me then that I, I, I guess I liked uh, in relation especially to the Ruiz film is the conception of the dystopic future as a labyrinth, like even more so than the game itself, which is mm-hmm. often depicted as, yeah, a labyrinth of uh, chaos and violence where helicopters materialize out of the air. Uh, but the depiction of the city itself, and I guess like that was the first cue to me uh, going like, okay, the game has the same filter visually as the real world what's going on here and i was thinking about the matrix but then i was thinking also like this is some fucking world on a wire shit right you know like this is some layers and levels of reality shit why else would virtual reality and quote reality be identical you know so all that started firing off in in my brain and yeah you know again i think to 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 bring the two films together in that sense i i think that abalon does have a little bit more complexity buried within it that that you know, I mean, because like you said, it's 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 either a very dumb movie or a very very smart movie, probably <laughs> both, probably at, the both at the same time, time right? Yeah. But like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that idea that Ruiz is constantly hammering from Borges and and from others of you know the map becoming so detailed and so perfect in its scale and its depiction that you can perfectly you know lay it over the territory or the terrain, right? That it it becomes. Mm. It becomes the territory itself. It becomes the terrain itself. When you when you make a map so perfectly detailed down to the most like fine the, the finest point, you lose the ability to discern what is the map and what is the the terrain it's it's mapping. And I think that Avalon does explore that, you know, but again, 
you know, Oshi fully admits that like he 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 doesn't he doesn't necessarily like overthink or certainly desire to like spoon feed his ideas in his in his stories, you know? So I think it it does share an element of like you can treat it like a game and you can try to seek out those moments. Because like you mentioned yeah. her dog. There's this very prominent dog that that she's feeding in the quote real world and and that's like one of the the you know signposts like okay she's not in the game she's got this thing that she loves but there's a strange moment where the dog just dematerializes at one point i mean it just disappears it just glitches out and and then we see this image of the dog in other places on posters and in this other level that we'll get to later so it does then i think invite you to go back and question what you saw before and whether there is this distinction between, you know, one version of, of the real and, and the virtual. So, so maybe there's something there to, to, to sort of dive into deeper, but, but I do like want to, you know, talk about the Ruiz film a little bit more because yeah, to me, it's like, these are both kind of, they're, they're both films that encourage you to, engage with it um and to play with it and i think it's so awesome that we did put these two films together because the ruiz film is itself like confounding and frustrating and aggravating but it is i think a lot more playful than than uh avalon is i mean avalon yes. is like it's serious and it's heavy and it wants you to to engage with it in those terms but but ruiz is sort of like he's he's He's, I think like, yes, he's playing a game with the audience and, and he's, he's fully acknowledging almost from the beginning that this is going to be a frustrating game for you. I mean, the guy walking up to the, the board game, you know, he, he literally says, this is the worst kind of nightmare I find myself in, you know, the didactic <laughs> nightmare. And it's true for, I think, a lot of people to watch this movie, you know, you might say like, well, this is the worst kind of nightmare for me to 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 engage with cinematically speaking. Right. I could very easily imagine someone watching Snakes and Ladders and having that reaction. I had the exact opposite. And it was kind of funny that I decided to watch it after Avalon as opposed to beforehand. I think it was probably because, too, I thought Molly would get a kick out of Avalon, which which wasn't the case, but I'm like, well, I've got this Ruiz thing. Let's see. We'll try this out afterwards. And the Ruiz film reminded me so much about why I like this type of cinema and experimental cinema in general, especially when there are rules that are introduced that do feel very different than the types of rules you're used to in commercial or traditional cinema, right? And it made me think about the act of movie watching and just what we do on this show as this elaborate game and this form of play that we are really creating for ourselves, right? When you're thinking about some of these definitions of play, you know, certainly no monetary gain here. And we're just, we're <laughs> playing with these films in our own way. And I think a lot of the great experimental films, oftentimes they have their own rules that they set up at the beginning. And then you have to think about those rules while you're watching it to interact with it meaningfully. And, you know, I don't want to say win at the end, but at least walk away feeling like it was a success. And with Snakes and Ladders, that's 
how I felt right at the top when they're saying, okay, here's the board, here's the board, you're in the game now, but we just got to clarify that this is also kind of a nightmare you're having. So, you know, do your best to make it to your appointment while you're following the paths and rolling the dice to, to get through this thing. And in that sense, you know, once that's introduced at the top of something like this, I'm just ready to have a good time and enjoy the Ruizian the gameplay pleasures, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, like, the giveaway, of course, is there's a re- recurring image of a gigantic arm in the sky rolling dice, like, yeah. as if God was rolling dice, and the arm is lit up strobing like a film projector, right? So I think mm. Ruiz is acknowledging, like, the inherent sort of idea of like God playing games, but also the filmmaker who is God in the all, you know, in the construction of a film, uh, playing games with the audience and with the characters. And yeah, the guy H is just like constantly being like transposed or taken, uh, to new parts of the city. And is just like aggravated, uh, pretty much the whole time. You know, what's interesting too. I, I, we haven't mentioned this, but, um, you know, in the subtitles, he's H, but I kept, it, it was blowing my mind, uh, that the French pronunciation, uh, was Ash, Ash. and <laughs> the Polish people in Avalon <laughs> are calling the main character whose name is Ash in the subtitles Ash. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. they, we had two Ashes playing games Dude. and, and I was, I was really digging that, but you know what, again, just to bring the, bring the two films together again in this like exploration of like play, I think that they do both kind of share a similar sort of idea that again, um, I think for me is, is, is something I grapple with all the time when I think of games and gaming and playing games and stuff like that, which is this, this, um, this question of like, you know, what is the point of all this? What is the point of all this? Like in, in, in zigzag, you know, that is, that is of course a very important question. Like, why i'm just trying to get to the fucking doctor's <laughs> office or whatever you know what is the point of this and there's even a point later in the movie where where you know one of the guys is basically like oh what about the appointment he's like oh i blew that long time ago that's that's not even a question if i'm making that appointment now but he's lost in this game that was at first very frustrating well i think it remains frustrating throughout so the question is, all right, well, if there isn't this clear conception of, quote, winning, why do you play the game? And that's a question in Avalon as well. Why play this game that seemingly has no ending? Uh, what is the compulsion to play if it isn't about some sort of, you know, you know, end, like finish line that you cross and gives you a, a, a big sense of, like, finite completion and i think that both of these films are are again exploring that idea from from slightly two two different perspectives for for ruiz it's like well that's all there is in life if we're not constantly playing a game if we're not constantly losing ourselves in games and inventing new games and treating life as this this wonderful game that we should recognize we are we're we're lucky to play you know and that it shouldn't be about 
winning, or again, going back to those earlier definitions, like monetary compensation, like a game show, you know, right? Win the million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire, but about like, no, it should be about the fun you had with the questions and not the, the prize money that they're dangling in front of you. It should be the, the test, the test of yourself. And, and again, Avalon is exploring that as well, right? For Ash, like what is the compulsion? Yes, they do bring up the point that there are people who can can earn money off this, but but that that only seems to be so she can buy, you know, apples and potatoes and steak for her doggy or whatever, right? The, the, the most bare existence. She's not driving around in a fucking like Lamborghini, like some, some hack <laughs> YouTube streamer causing riots in New York or whatever, giving away free PlayStations. I mean, the Bishop, you know, intimates that she's living quite large in the context of everything, but right. It yeah. is to us, uh, not very large at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's this question of like, well, like, what else should I be doing, right? What else should I be doing with my time? And again, like, they talk about things in the movie that bring me back to, let's say, a, a, a very formative game that we all played together, Battlefield 1. I mean, we we played this World War One set first-person shooter, and... Want to talk about a sense of, of emptiness? <laughs> you know, it's like you you go through a horrific battle only to log in and, and do it all over again. And I mean, yeah. how yeah. many people can say they've fought in Verdun dozens of times? For three years like, straight. Yeah, I mean, like aside from have. a French soldier right. <laughs> yeah. in 1916 or whatever. Yeah. Like, Currently alive. Yeah, know? yeah. Us, you know. So why did we keep going back, you know? Like... Uh, even when you had a, a great victory or a game and, and felt really good about yourself, well, you're going to do it all over again. You know, it's that, yeah. it's that, it's that thrill of the challenge or that, that testing of yourself. And the camaraderie of the party, of the squad. I mean, that's like really what was cracking me up. Avalon being this like very methodically designed kind of like art house sci-fi. And then it's like going along and I'm just like, she misses her gamer friends. Mm -hmm. That's what this is about. This whole thing is about her missing her gamer friends. Yeah, That's it. You know, like that's like the heart of the film. And I was cracking up. Yeah. Honestly, like Like, I think I was having fun (laughs) with the movie, Ryan, maybe more than you were because I was, I was, I was laying this movie like a map over my own experiences as a gamer, you know, as somebody who, who, who used to game a lot more with his friends and now does play a lot more solo. And I felt like Ash, I mean, I honestly sat there and, and I'd just be like in there going like, yeah, it is a lot harder for a solo out here and it isn't nearly as fun as when you had the whole team, you know, <laughs> kicking ass together, feeling unstoppable out there. And yeah, when she suddenly just like talking to her former teammate Stunner, the who was like the scout, the thief of their of their team because they have 
classes we learn. You know, she's a warrior right. stunner. This this guy who's now very down on his luck. He was the the thief, the scout of the team, and even Stunner is like, you know, don't you miss it? Like, don't you wish? We could all be back together like it used to be, you know? She, of course, says she doesn't, but, like, I agree with you, Marsh. She misses him. And and that's also part of it. She's, quote, like, searching for one of her former teammates, this guy Murphy, who who has apparently disappeared, slash wound He's up in, the hospital. in a vegetative state. Because right. that's another element in this world is that you can get so lost in this game, Avalon, that you wind up in basically like a catatonic state called, you know, the unreturned. You're, you're quote, one of the unreturned. You're forever online, I guess. Right. Or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, I've met people like that. You know, I think that's also yeah. a prophetic quality. Some of my best friends are unreturned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do think that Snakes and Ladders, though, does capture the pleasure of forming those parties right and finding those teammates it's like the opposite of you know that that aging quality of gaming when you are solo and you're lost and you're trying to find your old teammates again i like the development of the squad and the different people that help ash on his uh journey throughout you know the board game of paris because you get uh, like a wide variety of people i like the blind man that teaches him how to move through the labyrinth of this portion of the game by paying attention to the sounds and the melodies that define the different passageways, right? And throughout, he just, like, he's meeting new people, and I, I, I generally thought, you know, the vibe was good amongst all the, the game masters, at least enough of people for him to choose to, to develop his party for when he does turn to Avalon uh, in a few years. <laughs> you know, it was uh, another, like, connection, you know, just as... I think Avalon is sort of prophetic, you know, as we were already talking about in the way it, it portrays, you know, the certain aspect of gaming culture. Uh, Ruiz also quite prophetic because, you know, during one of the flights of fancy, when the the woman narrator is going through all the hypotheses and propositions about like maps or whatever in this like car ride, uh, the second proposition uh, it cuts to a television and we're seeing like from the perspective of a car going through streets like these snowy landscapes on a television uh, and the woman says Deuxième proposition La carte parfaite serait l'ensemble des trajets possibles mémorisés sur un vidéo disque qui les restituerait à volonté sous forme visuelle Cette carte parfaite rendrait d'inestimables services à l'armée aux agences de tourisme et à toutes sortes de voyageurs a perfect map would be the sum of all possible routes stored on video disc, which would reproduce them as required in a visual form. The perfect map would render inestimable services to the army, tourist agencies, and all sorts of travelers. And again, I'm just like, boom, like, that's how we live now, you know, like, fucking people pull out their iPhone map to like go three blocks away to the grocery store or whatever. Sure. No one knows where yeah. they're going. Or, you know, another aspect, too, to, to, to again, tie it into to gaming and the world of gaming today, it's, it's this whole huge industry that has developed, particularly on, on, like, YouTube, of people just putting out 
game tutorials that tell you every single thing you're supposed to do to get to 100% completion. Every place you're supposed to go. You know, even look at something like Red Dead Redemption 2. You know, they've built this world that you're literally supposed to just get lost in and wander around. And yet... You can go online and people will tell you where to find any possible item, any possible thing, any possible location, and exactly how to get there. And it it almost makes you question, like, well, where is the game in that, right? And I think that that's sort of the irony of what... Uh, what Ruiz is also playing with here, right? Because if we had those things, and we, let's be honest, you're right, we do have those things. It's like, what do we lose in the game of just simply moving through a city when we have our route predetermined to every single turn and every single dip and every single spot along the way, right? We don't look at the buildings around us because we are simply following a line, you know, this line on a map that has been compiled on the internet as being the most efficient and direct route you can take to your right. destination. The new Zelda games have a f- sort of a philosophical joke as it relates to that because they're really these big expansive worlds because I know neither of you have played them and they're so dependent on the idea of nature and discovery and paying attention to the signs all around you to find little things. And so scattered around these worlds are all these seeds that are all in curious little visual spots that you interact with differently and there's like 900 of them. And there's no expectation in this game's design that you do find all of them. They're just things you eventually like kind of collect as you move around to upgrade stuff. And there is this, to me, what registers as a big joke because you literally, in order to do this, you would either need to comb every inch of the game probably more than once because you'd probably miss some things or exactly what you're describing, Andy, and what Ruiz is kind of playing at, like the map, the predetermined map that guides you through everything. And in these games, in the Zelda games, if you do find all these seeds, you get like a turd from the like tree man that you give them to. He gives you like a <laughs> golden piece of poop. And and it's sort of like Nintendo saying like, we know you cheated the system, <laughs> you know, like, and you also just wasted your fucking time, <laughs> you know, because it's joyless, right, if that's how you're approaching it. And I I hadn't considered, Marsh, though, how, you're right, how prophetic the, like, those snowy streets TV simulation scene is in the Ruiz film, because I was exclusively thinking about it in the sense of him referring to the army, and I was also then, my brain was jumping towards those, uh, those great Harun Faraki video game films and talking about serious games. Yeah. The idea of games as utility and both as a way of like training and also trauma reduction and just how the army employs all of that. And so I was, I I guess I, I, I got a little tunnel vision on that, but it is true. That scene is Rui's kind of making a gag about us not being able to find the grocery store. That's three blocks away from our home because the map becomes the guide and you end up playing life because you're just using it as a tool to get around. <laughs> That's fucking right, dude. Raul saw the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what is crazy though, since you brought that up, I mean, when I was um, working on my dissertation, which was basically on this subject, war and media, mm-hmm. and you know, half of it was focused on cinema, but the other half was focused on, on war and, and gaming, you know, war and, and you know, the world of, of, of video games. Um, I did come across this research at a certain point about 
you know, new methods for treating soldiers with PTSD, specifically um, using virtual reality, a la Avalon or a la this same sort of idea where, you know, they would basically build a simulation of their traumatic event and, and allow them to go back in and replay the trauma, revisit the trauma over and over again to the point where ideally it becomes virtualized, that they look back at their trauma as this sort of unreal event you know, they, 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 in this case, we're going to try to take the reality out of it by virtualizing the traumatic experience. In one of the Harun Faraki serious game shorts, that's basically what one of the whole episodes is about. And you see an entire session mm-hmm. and boy, that guy's not, not processing it well. You know, like I oh, think yeah. they're in like the early stages of working with him, but like it seems like they're terrorizing him, you know, because oh, yeah. we're seeing the visual and they're like, confirm, what did you see? What do you remember? What did you see? And just like harassing him like into these, you know, it was like an IED oh, yeah. situation that this yeah. guy was like trying to remember. Um, and making him do it over yes. and over. Yeah. And just repeat it over. And he was like breaking down. Yeah. I haven't seen the 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 um, dude, I'll send you I that haven't seen shit. the film, but I've seen the footage because right. I was researching it, but I haven't seen the, the, the movie that you guys are discussing. But yeah. yeah, I saw that footage. I mean, I saw what that world looked like. And, and funny enough, it happened not far from uh, where I am right now. <laughs> that was all done in Tacoma at um, one of the military forts, one of the research stations, specifically the Faraki film. Oh. That was like, that was all in a Tacoma facility. Kind of crazy. Wow. So I've got that nearby, and I've also got the Peter Watkins... Uh, the nukes. You know, the nukes. <laughs> the submarine yeah. nukes, yeah. <laughs> Hand-fed, yeah. But again, you know, it goes back to, to that idea, right? Like, that's the idea behind it. It's like, okay, let's, let's try to take this traumatic event and turn it into a map. A map that this person can ideally follow out of this cycle of, you know repetition and and you know very sort of psychologically damaging repetition let's try to map their way out of it by recreating the terrain perfectly down to the the finest detail i mean i remember you know in in the stuff that i was seeing you know how intensely they were trying to get these guys to be like describe every aspect of the street you know what cars were on the street what did it smell like you know, and try to pump all of those details in to, to, to put them back there, you know, to put them back in that exact same place. And I was thinking about how I don't really have anything to say about this other, other than in Snakes and Ladders, I was really interested when he was going over the different types of maps, how there was some time spent on maps that were purposefully false maps that had such as like mountainous terrain where there were no mountains but felt as though there should be to me that is just like such an interesting riff on play and such an odd thing for someone to do i don't know if either of you know anything like more about that like why that (laughs) happened or if you caught something else he mentioned but it was just interesting to me yeah i didn't i didn't you know think about that specific map but 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 i was thinking more broadly about this idea that you know throughout 
time throughout, you know, the, the history of cartography or just humans playing the grand game of, of spreading onto every corner of the globe, you know, or the conquistadors or the ex, quote explorers, you know, these guys who discovered things that had sure. already been discovered by other people, like how shitty their first maps probably were. I mean, let's not forget that, that if you, if you go back far enough in history and you look at a map of the world, it's going to be missing a whole hell of a lot of shit. (laughs) Everything's going to be drawn wrong, you know? And, and yeah, the, there's just going to be a section with a big circle that say, there be dragons, you know? Like, (laughs) I think that's also what he's playing with is, is that, yeah, you know, like there's also a lot of really bad maps out there because people didn't have perspective. They, they, they would map things that they hadn't seen. They had mapped places that they hadn't gone. I think one of my favorite parts of the film is when, you know, the camera's panning over one of these maps during the section when he's talking about, you know, imaginary maps or whatever, and you don't know what it is, and the voiceover says, Une carte peut être dite erronée quand on ne retrouve pas dans le territoire ce qui figure sur la carte. Les cartes erronées sont des auxiliaires précieux. Elles permettent de découvrir ce qu'on ne s'attend pas à trouver, de tromper l'ennemi, d'éblouir les amis, de prendre ses désirs pour des réalités. Elles permettent également de toujours refaire de nouvelles cartes. Uh, a map may be called inaccurate when one cannot find in the territory that which appears on the map. Inaccurate maps are valuable aids. They enable you to discover what you do not expect to find, to deceive your enemies, dazzle your friends, and make your desires a reality. They also make it possible to constantly make new maps, and that's when it, it just reveals that we're looking at the land of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah. like to me, yeah, he's talking about movies, he's talking about imagination, he's talking about games, like inaccurate maps, made-up maps, like... Is our board games not made up maps, you know, like uh, in that sense? But uh, sure. yeah. Yeah. Well, it even got me thinking about when he mentions that the maps lag behind the territory or in some instances predict the future and are prescriptive maps of what might be to come. Right. And I sure. mean, I think that could be very easily applied to video games, too. Or Chicago. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Sam and I have been playing this video game that uh, is like this Viking survival thing that does let you tinker with the landscape and affect it, but it doesn't actually apply to the overall map that you see and you have to like note it as such like if you're digging a new canal or something like that and i that's the first thing i thought of when Rui said that i'm like yes i actually have a map that's lagging behind my forward progress you know (laughs) yeah well especially hard as in snakes and ladders when we learn that the whole planet has entered the game oh the whole planet (laughs) has entered the chat and that's one of the yeah the sort of fun aspects i was also calling this in my mind Ruiz's planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. Because, you know, we get all of those, and there's an extended sequence where uh, H and one of the intellectuals he runs into the other players, they're flying in this plane. And <laughs> it's like the that ma- maps are like the, the blue screen background or whatever, or however they did it. I don't know. But like, yeah, just an insane sequence of them flying. And then there's maps and then they're over Paris and like what's awesome too is that for for a moment they're they are in a very 
very clearly they're in a real plane. They're up there in the sky. We see them. We see the footage. And then it's like cut to them in the like 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 a 10 year old built the the fake <laughs> yeah. plane yeah. model yeah with the, maps. the end of repo man yeah. <laughs> yeah dude yeah i mean it is it is hilarious you know to go from there and again like he's being playful he's playing with the boundaries of of cinematic realism here throughout the film and again i think like going back to his ideas of of cinema as a game you know, Ruiz has at many points talked about his frustrations with uh, certainly like American cinema and the formulaic quality of so much of, you know, uh, Hollywood's, you know, central conflict theory obsessed formulaic approaches to how to tell a story, you know, and I, I kind of feel like this is him also grappling with that, you know, cinema and art and life, you know, this should be a game and a game of constant rediscovery, a game that like in this film, we don't really know all the rules too and we 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 kind of should be able to make them up as we go along to to constantly enrich our ideas of play you know think about all the goddamn like screenwriting manuals that are out there that are like within the first 10 pages this should happen and then on page 30 this should happen right everything has been mapped out again you already invoked him Peter Watkins, right? The moniform where everything at the beginning is predetermined, you know, where where what we experience by the end of the film has already been mapped out for us from the first fucking frames of the goddamn movie, right? So like where's the discovery in that? Where's the sense of of play? Where's the 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 ability to wander in most of what gets produced. There is no wandering. We're simply dragged along this predetermined route that everyone will experience the exact same way. Right. Yeah. It's like the difference between having total freedom in something like Metal Gear Solid as opposed to playing another game where it's just a quick time event that guides you through a boss fight where everything is the same. You're just pressing a set of buttons and you have to hit it at the right time. And then everyone gets to watch the same little stupid video that the game is is producing for you. But I think it, it was like 30 minutes ago, Andy, you said something about Ruiz's idea of play that I really liked in relation to watching films and how you can kind of approach his films. And that's basically the distinction between what you were saying between winning a game and then also the joy of just the questions that you had along the way. Because recently I watched a a really amazing Ruiz film called Love, Torn, and Dream, which is an exhausting film to watch, right? And you definitely walk away thinking you did not win (laughs) uh, by the end because it does have a gambit that is set up at the very beginning. Ruiz is... There's like a character representing him talking to the actors and the cast that are putting this movie together. And he's he's referring to this extremely old, I think it's from like the 1600s, sort of design of storytelling and how ultimately there's nine forms of stories. That's like sort of the gist of it. And it's like, these are the rules and stories can only have these nine things. And what he does then is he has all these people play characters in nine different stories that span centuries and they're all taking place at the same time in the film and they're all all the actors are like hopping between each storyline 
and it is it's brutally confusing of course and it's never you never feel like you're winning you feel like the film is constantly just spinning you around in circles trying to make you barf uh also very nice that there's barf in this ruiz film vomits dice he vomits ooh, dice. Ooh, really, ooh. really like that a Very lot. Inspired. Uh, There's vomit in Avalon too. Let's yep. be fair. You know? <laughs> it's, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't be too hard on Avalon. It's got barf in it. But yeah, I mean, when I f- was watching Love, Torn, and Dream, I kept thinking as I'm again moving through all the same spaces, but everyone's in different costumes, riffing, spinning around in circles. I thought, how can I win? Like I do feel defeated by this thing that is supposed to be so playful. And it was only later on reflection when the things I remember about that movie are those crazy questions I was asking of it when he would move from one story to another seemingly with no link at all. It was when I was asking that question of like, what does this have to do with this? And then that is what the winning was, right? It was asking that question of that link because it's such a strange move for him to do and it was nice then to kind of revisit that model with this film that's only 30 minutes long because then i could just uh, enjoy that in like a micro level of asking those questions from moment to moment and map to map but that's the pleasure of ruiz you know how can a guy have three lives and only one death <laughs> fuck around and find out you know but like nothing is yeah nothing is off limits for him you know and i think that sense of yeah pushing uh, the boundaries i mean you can you can draw a line to avalon in terms of like at least ash and avalon is seeking also to break out of the confines yes. of this sort of like you know this map right she wants to go outside it or through it or into the next level which uh, mania mode or whatever yeah <laughs> which is even scarier because they i think they also tell her right like well if you go in here like there's no way back like it, it's not designed to be a level it's not like a real level that you can complete yeah. basically you know even though you will get like a sick ton of XP. Yeah, you'll get, you'll get fucking <laughs> double XP if you find Which it. then does like translate to real cash. But yeah, I, I was actually kind of curious. Is she going in with the thought of rescuing some people, like of rescuing Murphy? Or is Murphy just gone and she, it is like for the thrill of like entering to that area of the game and achieving that state of play well, I with it's it. Bold. Yeah, it's for Murphy for sure, but also like she is she's lead, you know, like. Okay. I think, too, there's this sense again, like she she does want to be the best. You know, she was part of a team that was the best. She's continued to play solo, which is, we're told, way harder than playing in a party. And she relishes that. She prefers it. Even if she does kind of miss her pals a bit, like she, she finds it, you know, for herself to be a very rewarding experience to be able to go in, kick ass, get out, extract her items and her XP and, and be considered this like top player. So I think there's also, when she finds out that Murphy made it to this point, there is also this competitive sense of being like, I'm as good as Murphy. Like I should be able to get there and like, let me confront Murphy. Let me find Murphy because she does find his, his body or again in like, Oh, she's terms, his shell at the, the, the convalescent home for the unreturned gamers. So, you know, (laughs) she's found Murphy's body, but she's heard that his, 
you know, his, his spirit or whatever, you know, it's his consciousness. It's still in the game and it's in this, this secret area, you know, it's in this Easter egg that she's got to figure out how to, to unlock. Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that she, there was the potential that she could like retrieve that consciousness. I must have just like missed that, but that does make more sense. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't know. I mean, no one knows. It's all, you know, because no one, we're also, no one has made it back. That's also right. what we're told, um, that that very few have made it, and and certainly no one has come back to be able to tell the tale of what that, that you know, extra special level is, is all about. It's all unknown. Um, and again, for a gamer who has nothing left to prove, what is there? You know, now only this seemingly suicidal challenge you know there there's nowhere else yeah, her dog was gone so there wasn't really any point of living outside the game you <laughs> yeah know? yeah but you know what's funny too now that i'm thinking about it to to sort of bring this back i was really excited about this week to just you know be able to also talk about gaming i mean i i'm i'm mm-hmm. a i'm a huge fucking <laughs> gamer you know um but like you know, if you think about the transition of like a lot of gaming and gaming worlds in certainly in our lifetime, you know, going back to to the early days of playing something like Contra, that is like the essence of, of a, a sort of on rails experience, you know, the, the classic side scrollers that we played when we were very young, just just go right. You're going in one direction. That's the only direction you can go. You can't even fucking backtrack in those games. As soon as you enter this new area, that's it. You're only going forward. You're only moving in one direction. And as games developed, I mean, think about the the, the first time you heard the phrase open world, open world gaming. And the the premise, the idea, right? The, or the, the, the idealism for gaming with something like an open world is that you get to go wherever you want. It's this sandbox. You get to build your own choices, your own decisions. You're not limited. You have freedom. You have the utmost freedom of movement, which of course is an illusion, right? It's still an illusion in, in open world games. It's still a confined space. However, you know, if I'm thinking about this now in terms of like movies and how movies relate to gaming, you know, something like what Ruiz does is the cinematic equivalent of the ideal open world gaming experience. You know, that's what he's encouraging is get into my movie, get lost, wander around, make your own movie in my movie, right? Tell your own stories based on the connections that you want to establish in these, yes, labyrinthine kind of experiences. You know, he's kind of creating that that same promise of, hey, enter and go where you please with all of that you know, all of the images and sounds that are going to unfold here, you know? And I think, again, you're kind of seeing that that same thing in in ZigZag, right? It's that same idea of, yeah, get in here and get lost. If you, the, the, the harder you try to hold on to the, quote, rules or the progression or the, the pathway, right, the, the more upset you're going to get, you know? Right. Like... 
let go of that. Let it go. Like, let that slip away. And now just just play. Just wander. Just go on some fucking side quests and and worry about the, the main quest later, you know? Well, that's especially interesting in the context of it being an advertisement for a map exhibit, <laughs> right? Um, there's a quote from that book I, I referred to earlier, uh, the Ruiz book, and the author writes, uh, in the place of a character caught up in any kind of narrative conflict, we have a dreamer negotiating a series of levels, both cartographic and oneric, via a series of encounters, according to the logic of a highly enigmatic and shifting game. In this way, instead of a straightforward exposition of the materials of the exhibition, they are also caught up in the game-like logic of this didactic nightmare, rendering them far more enigmatic and enticing than any more conventional presentation. So even as an advertisement, it is inviting you, like, look at these snippets of these maps, like, get lost in them, not like... We have this map from this year, you know? There's yeah. no straightforward anything in this supposed advertisement, but he's showing you, yeah, like how exciting a map can be the way the way that he weaves it, you know, in his his usual just like meandering way and just dropping like, you know, this 17th century cartographer I really love did this, you know, or whatever. <laughs> just the most released yeah. shit ever. Yeah. Um, but it's fun. It's in, it's enticing, you know. Yeah. Didn't you say that David Lynch was also approached to design a game, and it was like, wasn't that you that shared that? Yeah, it was me? a computer game or a video game, and he basically foresaw just like a, a meander. You know, it's like imagine yeah. in the early '90s, you ask Twin Peaks David Lynch to make a game. It's like Kentucky Route Zero or whatever, you know? It's not uh, what they wanted. They were basically like, all right, we're, we're not going to go ahead with this because Slash, your idea... It's impossible to do what you want to do well, at it's that true. Point, they were know? basically like, you want to give the user all this freedom. Yeah. And like, we're, we can't, we won't, you know? Like, that's he, it. Yeah. He was, he <laughs> was like, in many other respects, just like ahead of his time slash in a whole different world than 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 most but right yeah he had a map that was predicting the future as Ruiz would say but yeah. yeah i was thinking about it because of what you were saying Andy the illusion of the open world game and even then the idea of like Lynch's idea of what total freedom would mean in a game of his design because i mean even think about all the breathing room you have to play games in something like Twin Peaks The Return. That's a whole show that's just side quests and denying you what the pleasure was from the original run, you know, like just like subverting all of your expectations. And yeah, I just, I remember you mentioning that, Marsh, about Lynch's idea of a video game. And I hope maybe he still can pivot to something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, God, in, in the context of this then and like freedom and, and the user experience, um, Avalon's visual style, of course, uh, is all building up to a, to a major shift that occurs in the last 30 minutes when she reaches this new level. And lo and behold, it's the goddamn real world. Our world. Our world of color. Poland, yeah. 2001, yeah. 2000. Which, does, which takes me to the Jay Hoberman quote that I have in relation to Avalon. Uh, Hoberman really enjoyed the film. Yes. And uh, it's a short capsule. Um, he doesn't say like too much about it. But he notes that 
the he he kind of starts his uh, three paragraph review mentioning that the CGI effects are sensationally yes. evocative. Explosions freeze and then separate into two dimensional layers. But he notes how at the end of the film, right, special A is supposed to be realer than real, and in the movie's final movement, Ash makes a breakthrough from her drab, near monochrome environment into a new world of color and advertising. Among other things, Avalon may be the first movie that uses contemporary Poland as a special effect. Which <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. No, no, not true, not true. On the Silver Globe. On the Silver Globe did it. Globe did it. Yeah. yeah. 20 years yeah. before. That's true. <laughs> but nevertheless. Wow. Yeah, we just got Holberman's yeah. ass, dude. So. Right, she emer- she emerges, yes, and, and sees the Coca-Cola billboard uh, into our world, and she's been stripped down to a cocktail dress and like a single pistol and yeah. a single clip of ammo. <laughs> she's you told know? it's a default loadout, you know, a li- a li- an LBD, a little black dress, and a PPK. Yeah. Yep, and she's sent to you know the Goldeneye sim- level one, dude. <laughs> She's sent to the symphony orchestra performing the theme of the film uh, and ultimately confronts her old gamer uh, teammate. But what we were talking about, again, it's like she's looking for this next level or this out, uh, and she escapes into to our world, which then raises uh, even more harrowing questions about freedom, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that. So, you know, it is a... It is a nice twist. If again, though, I sort of like foresaw it the minute I started thinking about World on a Wire and the color right. scheme, and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is all gonna go like full co- full color. It yeah, can only yeah. go there, you know." But it looks great. Molly got so pissed off when by the end of the movie she doesn't find the Basset Hound because they kind of signal in a way if you misread. Uh, some elements that that like is what's going to happen because because her dog was missing and then there's the poster of the dog on like all over the town for the avalon concert and i molly's like i could have swore there was a moment where someone kind of like points to the poster and is like oh and he's gonna be there you know and i think it was the guy like murphy like or who she was like was it because was that murphy at the end of the movie it was the bishop i don't think he said he's no, gonna be murphy she does yeah. encounter murphy at and, the end yeah yeah, yeah. End, but yeah. so molly thought that he in that moment was the basset hound and so when the basset hound wasn't in the concert hall she's like whoa but the basset the hound does <laughs> drive by yeah, the in someone's in the car, car. Yeah. he does yes but she thought the dog was on its way to the concert and was hoping for a big reunion. The, the Basset Hound is supposed <laughs> to just sort of be this, because again, it's it's so clear when you look at Ghost in the Shell, when you look at a lot of Oshi's other works, like how much he fucking loves Blade Runner. So like the 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 Basset Hound is supposed to be like, the, it's the fucking unicorn, right? Or it's the, right. the, it's the animals, it's Gaff's little like paper things. And, and so again, Throughout the film, she's got her basset hound and she's like, I know I'm real because I have my pet. I've got my dog, my basset hound. But when she then sees the basset hound later, after it's disappeared completely, dematerialized from her. I mean, it doesn't run away. It's just gone. Poof. She turns around and it's disappeared. I think it in that same <clears throat> you know, way in, in Blade Runner, certainly in the director's cut, right? Um, 
it's planted in there to make us then look back and question everything right. we saw. You right. know, is Deckard really a replicant? Blah, 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 that kind of thing. You know, but again, it's it's supposed to just be this kind of question without an answer. You know, where does the game end and where does the game begin? Again, in the in the same way with Ruiz. Like, at what point are we out of the game and and what point are we we you're playing the game, you know, we, we lose the ability. As you said, Marsh, like he goes from, from playing the game to being a piece of the game, you know, to being a, a component of the game itself, which again begs the question then who's playing him, right? Who's playing us? You know, my definition, cause I like those, those definitions, my big definition of like sort of gaming that I've always gone back to comes from this really great book I, I recommend to anybody that's interested in like theories of gaming. But there's this awesome book I read when I was in grad school called Gamer Theory by uh, Mackenzie Wark is is the author of, of the text. And in Wark's book, uh, they do this really great job to me of, of sort of blurring the line that's meant to distinguish the world of a game and the world in which we live. In the book, Work talks about how games are played in game space. And really, like, ideally, you know, a, a game, it, it, we're meant to look at the distinction as being like, well, well, the game is here. And, and outside of the game, we don't play games. But again, in this kind of Baudrillardian sense, Wark is inviting us to say like, wait, whoa, 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 games are built out of game space. The idea that life is this game. In the same way that cinema is built out of, you know, the, the world in which we live. And we enter the world of a movie and we're supposed to go, well, this is a movie and this is real life. You know, but again, in the same way that certain filmmakers like to blur that distinction between, you know, cinematic worlds and quote the real world, work is 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 asking us to do that with games. Life is a fucking game. You get XP, you you level up, you know, you compete with others, right? What are you talking about? You get about? coin. Yeah, yeah, you get coin. You know, like games are modeled off of game space the fucking game of life that we all play but the distinction becomes and Baudrillard makes this point as well that that the game is more utopic because the game has justice right yeah. the game has yeah. quote rules the game is supposed to be a leveling that we see nowhere in the fucking real world right in a game we're all supposed to roll in there and get the same loadout and and the same controller and and go at it and and the best will will rise and it doesn't matter how what socioeconomic background you have or whatever you know of course people will sit there and go like yeah but he was able to afford a better internet connection so he, he didn't have lag you know <laughs> uh, but but and i think that avalon is playing with that idea again because there is this confusion about what is the real world and what is game space and that sort of thing but again in ways strange ways that this has now become so present in our culture, you know, that people are making a living in games, that people are making a living here, that, that the game space has unfortunately fucking invaded games, that, that people use hacks, that people fucking cheat, that, you know, in a game that I, I love playing, Escape from Tarkov, people have made 
businesses out of trading those items in the real world, in, in extracting items and then going online and being like, I got this key card, 20 bucks, and it's yours. I'll meet you in game and hand it over to you, right? I mean, like... Welcome to the desert of the real. Exactly, dude. The game space has fucking in, in, invaded the wonderful, utopic, leveled playing field and corrupted it and destroyed it on a certain level. Just like the rest of the internet. Yeah, just like the rest of the fucking internet, man. I mean, again, like you talked about streamers and an Avalon, how it sort of predicted that world. Man, I don't know how, how often you watch like big name streamers, but there's so many of them. If you turn on one of their channels, you'll see these people playing this game for eight hours a day, whether it's Call of Duty or fucking Tarkov or whatever, and they look like they want to die and they are miserable <laughs> and they just sit there the whole time talking about how they hate the game and they hate playing it and they're fucking miserable, but they they have nothing else, right? Or they're trapped. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the unreturned now, dude. And they just sit there <laughs> taking donations from people to remain trapped in this fucking game. So true. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, whenever I buy something like that has a great deal of utility, like if I'm buying a new raincoat or something like that, I'd be lying if I said like when I was buying it, that the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm weighing the pros and cons, isn't a status chart from a video game, you know, that shows like the plus or minus score of the armor and like, yeah, exactly. Like what it does. Or if I get sick, I'm like, ah, status affliction, you know, Mm -hmm. lost in the labyrinth as always. Holy shit. Holy shit. I do love again though, like Avalon, like just like including certain like gamer things that like we've all had. Where's that? Like there's a moment in the game where, where Ash gets kind of like set up and ambushed by these, I read in the description are referred to as griefers, like in the world of the game. Like, so they're people who, who basically just try to fuck up your game and, and she gets ambushed by them and they want to like rob her of all her shit. And then like a big, like battle breaks out where a helicopter sort of appears, but it's got like a delay to it. And like someone yells out like, it's a time lag. And like in right. 2001, he's already predicting like lag issues, you know, and people right. screaming like these guys, these guys, teleporting all over the map dude what am i supposed to do (laughs) the scourge of gaming yeah that was good that was good i mean i do you know i kind of agree with overman i like when the guys get shot and they turn into little like 2d cartoon guys that dissolve that was like the funny cgi that i enjoy from an early 2000s thing it was the dragon the the movie through the dirt to give it that sheen that's what i i can never forgive well and you know i should point this out too i i think i mentioned this briefly to you folks before um you know something else i think we were kicking around too are those like like very interminable sort of sequences where there's like just absolutely nothing happening. And that's a, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trademark of Oshi's style, you know, contemplative moody spaces uh, in which no one's saying anything, no one's seemingly doing anything. Um, So this movie was eventually like picked up and distributed in North America by Miramax and Miramax released the DVD. And as Harvey loved to do, he wanted to make it more palatable for Western audiences. And that is exactly what he zeroed in on because for the North American release, they added a voiceover narration 
throughout the film. And basically, they just specifically added it in to all of those moments. So anytime you have a scene where it's just like Ash sitting in her apartment, like staring at the wall, like they have voiceover of her talking about what she's thinking and experiencing and stuff like that, you know? And I was like, while I was watching them, I kind of pulled up both versions so that I could kind of like be like, what does this moment feel like as intended? And then what does it feel like with the voiceover narration? Does it, does it, does it improve it or does it detract from it? And it's like, man, I mean like on a certain level, it does explain what's going on more, (laughs) Yeah, but it just, it's so much fucking worse, like on a certain level, because then it's just, the movie just doesn't fucking shut up. Like it's just constantly like a Ruiz <laughs> film, but yeah. without yeah. his writing, like a Ruiz film, but, but not encouraging you to, to sort of like get lost in it. But it's like, it, it's, it's Harvey in his own eyes, like throwing a lifeline to the audience to be like, here, hold on yeah. to this. You know, I'm going to explain the Arthurian legend to you, you know, why? Right. That got yeah. I'm not going to lie. You know, that's, it, it sounds way better. I mean, I, I never agree with what Harvey's ever doing with a cut, but you know, and again, you're also, right though if this feels like they never shut up but the idea of this having a narration sounds more enjoyable to me just because i hated looking and listening to it during those those contemplative moments i liked her keyboard sounds oh they're nice i did love those keyboards yeah i wish my keyboard sounded like that good smoking movie too but you know that that hits for me i wonder what wine scene would do with a ruiz film I would change it. I mean, buy it and not distribute it, so no one else yeah, can have it. Yeah. Like, I read, wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah, dude, I read uh, in a in a Ruiz interview that I was looking over before this. He talks about you know I made three films in America, and the producers were always saying to me, uh, "You need to make this so it's understandable to a black factory worker or whatever." And he was like, "If I was a black factory worker, I'd read Dostoevsky or whatever." It's Ruiz trolling. Uh, but yeah, say they, they would say shit like that to him, you know, like mm-hmm. dumb it down, like dumb it down, you know, oh, the most yeah. offensive way. Uh, and he uh, he hated that shit. I'll t- oh, <laughs> tell man. you what. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, uh, well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, these, these were these were our games. And thank you. You can always, uh, you know, send us. Emails, suggestions, questions. Yeah, we have to like follow that. up with we have to follow up with Matthew Dennison and ask him what what his throwback is. What are some yeah, of his favorite? That's right. State of play films, you know. Yeah, or games. Give us a little you know? roadmap. Hit us up yeah, if you're games. looking to party up, anybody. You know, out there. Yeah. Gauntlet. No, we, a, we need to get a gauntlet Discord going where people can just yeah. get in there looking for group. Looking you know? for gamers. Yeah. yeah. For, Let's party up. Party. Let's try to get to the class, the 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 class real or whatever the hell it was called. You know. Yeah, the Forest Two, yeah. Gauntlet Edition. <laughs> Well, uh, Ryan, it was kind of your topic. You're in charge. Yeah. You're in charge yeah. here uh, today. Uh, what about you? What are some uh, gamer-related motion pictures that you would like to recommend? Well, I had two that come to mind, and it fits well because one's quite short, um, not quite feature length, and the other one is a feature. And the short one is similar to one I already referenced here on the show, the Haroon Faraki, the Serious Games uh, film series is really great. I also love another one he did about 
computer video games called Parallel, and it's just Parallel 1 through 4, and it's him exploring digital spaces in video games, and he has this amazing quote that I, I think about a lot, um, because the, the films themselves are like kind of deconstructing visual landscape and exploring the rules of how those landscapes are designed and built and what exists outside of them and inside of them, etc. And he's got this great quote where he says, computer animations are currently becoming a general model, surpassing film. In films, there is the wind that blows and the wind that is produced by a wind machine. Computer images do not have two types of wind. Oh! <laughs> Which I really like. Get their ass. Yeah, it's amazing. There's like, he does, it's like he'll show a sequence from Call of Duty and he'll have the camera zoom all the way out so you see like the fake, you know, Middle Eastern town disappearing around its edges and you're just like entering into some other cosmic plane. Some of the best shit of all time. And then it's funny. I, I hadn't considered this movie until I actually started Avalon because I was thinking about Avalon being a movie that in my mind was trying to look cool but ended up looking really shitty. And I was thinking of another movie that in a certain respect was trying to look really shitty and I think ends up looking incredibly cool and that's Bajalski's Computer Chess. One of the coolest looking movies ever shot on an old Sony Port-A-Pack. We may have even talked about how great that movie is on the show before in passing just because I know Marsh really loves it. Oh yeah. And it's very memorable screening that the Chicago Film Society printed that film. Uh, they struck a print from it. You know, a film that's like shot on really archaic uh, consumer grade video equipment but i just love that movie it's so funny it's got a character named papa george in it in any movie with someone named papa george is like you know it's primo shit yeah. for me good movie for ai as well uh, topic, yeah that's true you know. yeah but yeah there's there, there's a lot of movies about chess you know i guess like if you think about different types of video games and board games and other tabletop games it really does feel like chess is probably the most well-represented Besides of games Mahjong, on film. of course, which we've already covered. Mm-hmm. That's true. There's probably more chess games, though. Or chess movies, I would say. Well, don't movies. underestimate the East Asian film industry and their <laughs> yeah, ability to true. churn out that's, Mahjong yes, films. I'm yeah. not saying definitively. Chess is much more right. global. Yeah. And chess just has so many poetic elements to its strategy that can really easily be applied to the structure of a film or the plotting itself just so much about chess strategy lends itself to narrative fiction i think uh but then yeah computer chess kind of fucks with that in a really fun way but those are two that i was thinking about yeah but yeah thank you both i mean it was a really it was a compelling pair of films it was a very curious mishmash um but so what do we have to what are the rules next week, Marsh? Open up the, the the instruction booklet and tell us what Andy and I have to do for the topic next week. Yeah, well, here I was last night, having gotten home from a lovely 35-millimeter screening of Kathleen Collins' Losing Ground, when I decided to pop on Waterloo and revisit my Rod Steiger studies and get a little more in there. Uh, and I'd been thinking, you know, all week about topics and It struck me, of course, watching Waterloo. I I was thinking uh, failure is a a great topic, you know? And it can be macro, it can be micro. Uh, And I know, Ryan, we've talked a lot about this because uh, William Gaddis himself was a big fan of the theme of failure. Um, 
and yeah, that's something I, I've always been interested in 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 cinema, especially. Uh, so yeah, that's that's it. Take it uh, however you want, but that's that's next week. We're failing. I can't wait to fuck up. <laughs> As always, you can follow us, listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, X blue sky follow marshlands you know whatever we're out there see you later thanks everyone c'est le territoire la planète qui est morte s'il n'y a plus de temps il n'y a plus d'espace juste cette image tout est devenu car 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 C'est absolument tragique. Tragique. On est peut-être sur Terre et dans le ciel. À la fois. Regardez, c'est la Terre. Ah, je comprends qu'il va se réveiller. Mais dans quel rêve Thank you.